And take your Bibles tonight, please turn to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, the reference on the screen I think is wrong, but we're going to go to James chapter 5. We'll look just at five verses tonight, and next week we'll do the last verses 13 through 20. James chapter 5. look tonight at the Christian and his burdens. The Christian and his burdens, we've been looking at a, a lot of things with this theme and Christian growth. James chapter 5. Let me share with you a testimony um, before we start. I received a note from uh, Brother Calvin Allen, and on Sunday he was preaching uh, for Pastor Lou Jerva in Michigan. I can't remember the name of the town. Uh, Saginaw, Saginaw, Michigan. And uh, when he got there, the pastor said to him, I've seen on social media that you preached last week at a church in Canada and a revival broke out. He says, uh, I guess I had put a blog on and somehow he had seen that and read it. And uh, so he uh, asked him, would you share about that in our evening service tonight? Would you just share a little testimony about what was happening? And Brother Allen said, I I shared the testimony of what happened in the services at Bethel. And he says, I was only speaking for about five minutes and the altars began to fill up and people began to get saved and, and people were getting right with God and people were weeping all over the auditorium. And he says, the Spirit of God moved in. And he says, I didn't even preach that night. We had an invitation for the next hour. And people just praying and weeping all around the room. And so God is still working and we're encouraged by that and He can do it again here. And so let's just trust the Lord for the working of His Holy Spirit. James chapter 5. James chapter 5. We're going to look at verses... 7 through 11 tonight, 7 through 11, and uh, actually we'll touch on verses 12 and 13, but we'll just touch on verse 13. Uh, Look at James chapter 5, the Christian and his burdens in chapter 20, uh, verse 20 will take us, and I guess that's why the scripture is the way it is on the screen, is because we will not finish Roman numeral 7 tonight, that will take us to the end of the chapter, but the very last point, uh, the last several verses will be underneath that, but it'll be for next week. All right, the Bible says in James chapter 5, verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it, until he receive the early and latter rain. Be also patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. Take, my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering affliction and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea and your nay be nay, lest ye fall into condemnation. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Let's pray. Father, help us tonight as we look at the Christian and his burdens and we're nearing the end of the book of James. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us to remember the principles that we've learned and grow in them, that the Word of God would have an effect in our lives. I pray the Holy Spirit would apply things to even areas that we did not know were a concern to us, but they're a concern to God. And so I pray that you'd help me tonight, Lord, fill me with thy Holy Spirit, help me to preach what you'd have me to say. Well, thank you in Jesus' name, 
Amen. Go back to James chapter 5 and verse 1 so we can get some of the context here. You'll remember that James chapter 4 and 5 were all tied together. And we see at the beginning of chapter 5, it says, Go to now, you rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered and the rest of them shall be a witness against you and shall eat of your flesh as it were fire. You have heaped treasure together for the last days. The end of verse 3 talks about those that have heaped treasure together. It doesn't, it's not referring to in this passage people who have God has blessed with material things. I, I, I'm reminded in the Bible of, of Job. Job was a very wealthy man until Satan uh, planned his attack and God allowed that attack and everything that Job had was taken in just a few moments. We know that David and Solomon were very wealthy men. And so wealth within itself is not necessarily wrong. But notice verse 3, the context here, ye have heaped treasure together. This, this carries with it the meaning of hoarding it for yourself. You're not using it for any good whatsoever. It is just to make a name for yourself. And he talks about this, this pleasure you have in the earth in verse 5. You have nourished your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed the just and he doth not resist you. But now he flips to the other side, and there are those that need to be patient because of tribulation. And so it seems like there was no middle class in this church that James is writing to, the church of Jerusalem. There was the very rich, those who had heaped treasure together, the Jewish elites, but then there was also the scattered and the poor. Now there were some that I'm sure started out rich, but because of persecution upon making a public profession of their faith, they became poor. They became outcast. They became persecuted. And so now the Bible says in verse 7, he's trying to comfort them. And we see a key in verse 10 of who he's speaking to. He says, Take my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord, for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. How many of you understand we don't need an example in our lives if we are not going through some of the same things? Those are wonderful things to call upon. We have uh, the faith chapter. We have the love chapter. We have different books of the Bible that help us with biblical examples. But they're more prudent and helpful in time of need. We go to the Psalms and we find when we're sorrowful that David was sorrowful at times. And it helps us bring us through those dark valleys. Well, now he's saying to them, consider the prophets. And this was a direct application saying, they too suffered affliction. And so he's relating to this church of Jerusalem and understanding these were a people that were afflicted. And that's why we've titled tonight, The Christian and His Burdens. And how do we deal with those afflictions and how do we deal with those burdens? We as a people in Canada have been blessed and we are not persecuted very often. I believe the day is coming. I believe that religious freedom is eroding right before our eyes. And I think that uh, we're going to see uh, more and more persecution as the day arises. They, the Bible is very plain that they'll call evil good and good evil. And that paradigm is shifting every day. And as it shifts and as uh, right becomes wrong and wrong becomes right in the eyes of the world, uh, there's no doubt we are going to be called bigoted and prejudiced and all those other things. Uh, we are going to be persecuted for our beliefs and for our faith. And so, look tonight at the Christian and his burdens. We'll start in verse 7. First of all, the burden of poverty. The burden of poverty. And I want you to notice that as we deal with these people that were suffering affliction, and what was their affliction? If we go back to the book of Acts, we'll find that they were impoverished. 
If we go to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we will find that Paul was making a plea to the other churches in Macedonia and Achaia, would you please give an offering to help these suffering saints in Jerusalem? And so we know what their problem was. They were persecuted to the point. Uh, he said, well, did they not have any money? I, I think it's very possible that they had enough money in their pockets, but they'd go to the market and they'd be refused. They were being persecuted for their faith. They were being perhaps even taxed beyond measure as others were not taxed because of their faith. And so it may not have been a case that they did not have the means to pay for things. They just didn't have things that people were willing to sell them and take care of their basic needs. And so there was a a great burden placed upon them. And in verse 7, he calls for simple patience. A call for simple patience. Look what he says in verse 7 and 8. Be patient therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he receive the early and the latter rain. So we see, first of all, the prospect. The prospect. It is believed that James wrote to the church of Jerusalem within likely only 12 years of the ascension of Jesus Christ. You say, why is that? It is, the book of James is dated before the Jerusalem Council, it was called, which took place 12 years after the ascension of Christ, historically speaking. And so it's believed that this is a recent book. And so even just 12 years after Jesus left, they were anticipating the soon return of the Lord. And so that gave them hope. And they said, here's the prospect. Jesus is coming soon. It was a time of great turmoil and persecution, but there's always hope in Jesus Christ. There's always the hope that Jesus Christ is coming soon. So though the church was impoverished, as evidenced by Paul's exhortation to give this offering to be a help to them, uh, it was producing a great anxiety, but James was encouraging them, hold on. Jesus could come at any moment. Just be faithful to the end. This is a time of trial and testing. I'm thankful today that we have that same blessed hope. And if persecution does arise, we will comfort one another with these words. It says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, The Lord Himself shall descend with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the voice of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be cut up to meet the Lord in the air and forever be with the Lord. What a wonderful promise of Scripture. But that's what we are comforting one another. That is the blessed hope. And so Paul says, in light of the Lord's coming, hang on. Be patient persevere now look what he says in verse 8 be ye also patient well didn't he just say that kind of seems redundant doesn't it i want you to notice uh oh sorry back up i sorry i mentioned a couple things in the first verse i want to give you a biblical reason for patience we just so we can fill out your notes here tonight the biblical reason for patience is the soon return of the lord the lord is coming again so that'll help you make sense of your notes anyway And then a biological reason for patience we see in the second part of the verse. He says, Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he receive the early and the latter rain. We have some farmers in the church and they would understand this illustration, wouldn't they? You know, a a farmer, I don't know, uh, Brother Judge, are you into your fields yet? You are? You're plowing? Have you planted anything a little bit soon? Uh, when will you start planting? 15 days, a couple weeks. So you're going to start planting. And after you plant, you put the seed in the ground. Uh, you still have to pull weeds once in a while. Probably not with cash crops so much, but you spray for weeds. 
You spray. Uh, there's other things you do to cultivate that crop. You put water. You irrigate if you need to. Is that right? I can't see if you're nodding, so sorry. But, uh, so there's, there's things that you do. But does that allow you to harvest in 30 days? No. You see, you can't speed up the seed. You can care for it, and you can, nur- you can put fertilizer, you can, you can spray for weeds, you can spray for bugs, you can, I mean, you can, we used to have to go out and pull weeds or hoe or whatever, and you can take care of the crop, but you can't speed up the fruit. And so, in Jerusalem, they have the early and the latter rain. Uh, it was interesting, when we were in Africa, we, we, uh, they called it the mango rains, and it was interesting that the African people believed this, that uh, we had what was called Harmaton season. I kept thinking they were saying Hamilton when they said it. Hamilton season. I thought, what has Hamilton got to do with it? I'm from Hamilton. But it was Harmaton. And Harmaton is, you, you know those classic pictures you see of Africa where it's kind of always dusty? You see that? And the sun's kind of piercing through the dust? Well, that's actually the sand or the dust from the Sahara Desert blowing down over West Africa. And it's just a big billow, and it just, it kind of gives you, it's actually nice because it gives you a relief from the sun. It kind of is like a shade almost. Well, then, in about the beginning of February, first, second week of February, they get what they call the mango rains. They get one rainfall every single year. And they can almost mark their calendar by it. The same rainfall comes every year on one day only. And it rains, and what it does is it settles down all that dust. And then the hot season begins. Because now you don't have the, sun, the blocking of the sun. So the sun just beats on you. But the Africans will say this, we believe that God sends the rain because that's the early rain for the mangoes. And the mangoes begin to blossom right after that rain. And as soon as they, they'll blossom all season, but they won't pick them until they get the latter rain. They'll get another rain at the end of their season, uh, about three months later, and when that rain comes, all of a sudden that fruit just gets real juicy and big. It sucks up. The mango trees have the ability just to absorb all that water and put it all out to the fruit almost within days. So the early and the latter rains. You see, they they just are patient and they wait and they understand that God has a, a plan for that seed. And that's the illustration, the biological reason we see in the Scripture tonight that God says, Be patient! He says, I'm doing something here. And you just have to be patient and wait until the Lord comes. Then in verse 8, he says, be also patient. And it does seem a bit redundant, but we see in this verse the promise. So we have the prospect, but then we have the promise. He says, be also patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. It's soon. Now, when he says, be also patient, it was interesting I looked it up in the Greek and I thought, is this different than the verse before? Is there some different meaning here that I'm missing? And literally the phrase, be ye also patient, is just a bit, a little bit different. It's James looking down at, at the church like he's looking at a child and saying, patience, patience. Have you ever said that to anybody? You have a child that was rambunctious and always ready to go? Maybe I heard it, I don't know. Now patience, patience. Literally, the word is used twice in that phrase. Be ye therefore patient. Literally is patience. Patience. There's a calming effect to the way he's saying it. Why? Why do we need to be patient? And he says, establish your hearts. 
for the coming of the Lord. So first of all, we see in this verse we're to be still. Patience, patience. Still your hearts. Relax. Calm down. I don't know, but it's interesting when you say something like that to somebody. You know, you're, you're dealing with somebody who's kind of amped up and they're excited about something and you just you have to calm down and say, now, calm down. It does kind of calm them down, doesn't it? They just go, oh, yeah, okay. Patience? Oh, yeah, you're right. It seems to have that calming effect. And James is saying, I want you just to be still. As a matter of fact, it's the same tense of the word that we read in Psalm chapter 46 when it says, Be still and know that I am God. Be still. Be patient. Look to the Lord in all these circumstances. And then we see to be strong. Look at the second part of verse 8. Be also patient. Establish your hearts. Turn, if you will, to Psalm chapter 1. Keep your finger in James chapter 5. Look at Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. What's he doing in verse 2? He's being still. He's meditating in the law of the Lord. And the Bible says in verse 3, And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of light, water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he, shall, uh, he doeth shall prosper. So he is still, and he's established. He's strengthened, because he's like a tree planted by the waters. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. It's unfortunate a lot of Christians aren't still in meditating on the Lord, and they're blown about a lot. The Bible says in the New Testament that we're not to be blown about by every wind of doctrine, but it's unfortunate. That's what we see a lot of times. And so the Bible says, be still and be strong. And then we see secondly in verse 9, back in James chapter 5, A call for sufficient patience. A call for sufficient patience. Verse 9, Grudge not one against another. Brethren, lest ye be condemned. So now our, our patience must extend not just through tribulations, but it has to extend one to another. How many of you know that when you're in a tough situation, you're suffering persecution and affliction, sometimes the first person we take it out on are those that are closest to us. So the Bible says, grudge not one against another, brethren. He has, boy, he has that word. He had to put the word brethren in there, didn't he? He's like, you're kind of backbiting with the ones that are closest to you. Stabbing each other in the back. I know you're feeling affliction and persecution, but grudge not one another. Don't complain. Beware of complaining. That's what grudge not one another means. There's a danger of those who have mutual suffering to turn against one another. We we need to be reminded of what Ephesians 6.12 says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual darkness and high places. The enemy is not one another. The enemy is the devil. We must be reminded of that. So beware of complaining. You know, I remember one time went to the spiritual leadership conference and we were coming home from that, and we, we got on a plane. And when I got on the plane, 
we were on Southwest Airlines, and Southwest Airlines is uh, nothing fancy about it, all right? It's like uh, shopping at No Frills, all right? So you get on the plane, and it's just like, well, sit wherever you want. And, and so there's no ticketed seats or anything like that, which I'm fine with. And uh, I always figure I'm not going to get a very good seat anyway, so I just sit out in the gate until... It's funny how they'll say, okay, we're now I'm about to pre-board, and everybody runs to the gate. Like, what, why do you want to sit... You're going to sit for four and a half, five hours. Why do you want to sit another half hour? I'll, I'll get on last. And so I sit there and wait, and everybody gets on. My wife gets nervous. She gets up there and leaves me. And I'm sitting there, and I'll wait till they call me. I don't care. I'm, I'm going to sit on that plane long enough. And so I got on that plane, and wouldn't you know, I get on, and I don't know if everybody was scared or what, but the first seat was empty. I thought, isn't that wonderful? Because the first seat means first one off. So I went to sit there, and the stewardess grabbed me, and she says, oh, sir, you can't sit here. She says, uh, this lady here is very sick. And so we're keeping the seat open. We're looking for a nurse or a doctor to come sit with them. I went, oh, okay. And a little light went on in my head, and I'm thinking, if they're very sick to the point of needing a nurse or a doctor, why are we taking them on this flight? That doesn't make sense to me. And so we got up in the air, of course, and we got to uh, somewhere over the Rocky Mountains, and sure enough, the pilot comes on and says, we have to make an emergency landing. They said, there's a lady on the plane that it appears she's having a stroke. I could have told you that when I got on. When I looked at the lady, I mean, she was, she was in distress. And so uh, they said, we're going to have to make an emergency landing. So we landed in Denver, Colorado. And uh, I thought, oh boy, we looked out the window and there was this black storm just coming over the mountains. And I thought, we're never going to get out of here. But it was also the middle of summer. And we were sitting in a steel tube with 280 people. And they had to refuel the plane, so that means they have to shut it all down. There was no air conditioning. It began to smell in there. 280 people crammed in that tube. I mean, it was hot. And we were trying to stand up and breathe, and everybody was sweating. I thought, they're going to have a few more medical emergencies in a minute. But finally, we got off. And we got to Chicago, and they come on the air uh, on the thing. So we have l- alerted everybody on the plane, or, or everybody that holds tickets on the plane. Your connecting flight is going to be waiting for you. We said, "Oh, that's wonderful." So I got off. We got off the plane, and as soon as we got off the plane, I mean, literally, we got off. The, we stepped into the airport, and they were calling our name: Alan Fury, Ida Fury. Get down to gate whatever. Your plane is boarding now. And they knew where we were because they put it at the speaker right as we were getting off. So they knew we were there, and they were saying, come to gate whatever. They were, they were just telling us, don't take the time to go look. You know, we're telling you where it is. You get down here. I said to my wife, I said, I'm going to run down there as fast as I can, and I'll get them to hold that door. I said, you come as quick as you can, all right? And she, all right. I mean, I ran all the way to the other end. Can you picture me running? People were getting out of the way. I mean, look out. The train's coming, you know? And so I I was running through that airport, Chicago O'Hare Airport, not a little one, a big airport, all right? And I I mean, it was a 20-minute run. I had never run that much in 30 years since I got my driver's license. And so I got down there, and I just get there, and they close the door. And she says, sorry, sir, this flight's closed. I said, but you just called me and told me to come. Well, I'm sorry, sir, it's closed. Nobody else can get on the plane. I said, but why would you call me then? knowing that I was at the other end of the airport and knowing it would take me 
a few minutes to get here. Why would you even call me? Well, I'm sorry, sir, you've missed the flight. We've rescheduled your flight. And I said, oh, wonderful. And just then my wife comes running up. And I said, well, where's my gate then? And she says, it's gate B12. Guess where I got off? B11. Way back at the end of the airport. So we ran all the way back, and we got there just in time to get on a flight. Now, I've just spent five minutes complaining. Let me ask you something. How did it help you? That was the point of the whole story, friends. Wasn't you, matter of fact, I was a little disappointed because you laughed at me through the whole thing. But did my complaining help you at all? It didn't, did it? It made you glad you weren't me. But it didn't help. It didn't edify. It didn't exhort. That was the whole point of that illustration. Complaining really doesn't help anything, does it? I mean, we like to complain and we like to get things off our chest, but the Bible says, grudge not one against another. That means don't be complaining and holding grudges one against another. Why? Brethren, lest ye be condemned. So beware of complaining. Beware of condemnation. Lest ye be condemned. Why? Because of the prophecy of the judgment. Because of the prophecy of the judgment. God's going to judge every idle word. God doesn't want us grudging against a brother, complaining about a brother, and whining all the time. And so let's be careful, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. How would you behave if you knew that Jesus Christ heard every word? He does. He hears everything. The judge standeth at the door. He's right there. So because of the prophecy of the judgment, and because of the proximity of the judge... And then we see thirdly tonight a call for sublime patience. Look at verse 10. Take, my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. Call for sublime patience. James is not done with his exhortation. He continues with some examples now. And so first of all, we see the prophets in verse 10. Take, my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering and affliction. The, the idea here is that they were actually persecuted for speaking in the name of the Lord. That's why it's put in there. They spoke in the name of the Lord and they were suffering and afflicted for it. If we're going to take a stand for the Lord Jesus Christ, there's a very real chance that we might uh, be hurt by it. But we can also look back in time and see that God supplied for them. And that's the encouragement and that's the exhortment that we see. How does it help? There's a record of those who went through persecution with patience and God preserved them. And then we see their example in the second part of the verse. It says there for an example of suffering and affliction and of patience sometimes we look at others and say if they can do it we can do it too if they can experience the grace of god maybe we can too i'm wondering if that church in michigan thought if bethel baptist church can have revival so can we they begin to pray the harder and as god opened up heaven that night they too had a revival you see, if it happens before, we can take example, or take the encouragement from their example. Then we see, secondly, the patriarch in verse 11. So the prophet in verse 10, but the patriarch in verse 11. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job. 
We count them happy which endure. First of all, I want you to notice a point to ponder. Isn't it interesting that we mark people in our Bibles that do well? We mark them happy that endure. James says this is not a phenomenon that we do today, that we don't look up to certain people like David or Moses or Abraham and we look down on Judas. That's that's not a new phenomenon. He says we mark them happy that endure as well. I'm thinking, if I'm looking back at history, I'm thinking that we are encouraged by Job, but we're disappointed in Jonah. We are we cringe at the failures of Samson, but we're encouraged at the triumphs of Daniel. And so we too mark them which are happy that endure. Those who have patiently persevered are those whom we remember. And then not only is there a point to ponder, we see a person. I lost my point. A person to ponder. Look at verse 11 in the second part. You've heard of the patience of Job. So he gives us an example. And have seen the end of the Lord. That the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. So we see first of all what Job endured in his body. Think of all the things that Job but we are reminded of what he went through. A tornado comes and knocks down his family's home and kills all of his children. His animals all die and, and, and his body is afflicted by painful sores and disfiguring disease. He had a wife that was all he was left with and she said, why don't you curse God and die? Take your own life. That's no way to live, but the Bible says that Job patiently endured all of that affliction. And the Bible says, through that, have seen the end of the Lord. We got to see what God was going to do. We got to see the end of the story as God restored Job's family and and restored all of his wealth and took care of all of his needs. And God just truly blessed him in the end because he was patient. And the Bible says, with his mouth he never sinned. He sinned not in all that he did. So what Job endured in his body, but I want you to see what Job endorses in his book. Look what it says at the end of verse 11. We learn that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. This is not a direct quote from Job, but it's a paraphrase of what Job says at the end of the book of Job. The Lord is pitiful and of a tender mercy. As Job was sitting in the dust and scraping his boils with a piece of pottery and covering them in ashes, he learned that the Lord looked down upon him in pity. He loved him and showed mercy. That's the patience of Job. Nowhere is it quoted, but the conclusion we come to is that Job found the Lord to be of a tender mercy. I want you to see secondly tonight the burden of proof. The burden of proof. Letter A was the burden of poverty, but then there's the burden of proof. Often when undergoing trials, we say too much. When I say the burden of proof, I'm not looking for a lawyer to show forth evidence, but we are to prove ourselves through trials. We are, uh, let me put it this way, years ago, when we first went to Stony Creek, I, I took a job in a grocery store, a secular job, and uh, for the first few months, they had somebody off on maternity leave, and they said, hey, do you know how to do the bakery stuff? And I said, oh yeah, sure, I can do the bakery. I'm not sure I could, I just, I needed a job. And I remember actually working in Port Dover with Mr. Chaparral, and he was the baker, and he showed me how to do some things, and so I said, I can figure this out. And one of the machines that we did the first night was the proofer. 
And you take that dough and you put it in the proofer and you let it rise. And it would come out, come out ready for the fire. I remember one night working on a, a sermon that week and going to work and thinking, isn't this something how we are proved, but then we are also tested by fire? And I thought, what, a, what an illustration that, that we are put through the fire, but first we need to be proved that we are worthy to stand the trial. It's like what Brother Tony sang about tonight, the refiner's fire. It's something that, that, that's not to be shied away from. It's, it's, it's God purifying our lives and proving us through the fire. This is what the Bible says in verse 12, But above all things, my brethren, swear not neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. And so first of all, he says, what are we to avoid? Verse 12, swear not. When you're in the trial of affliction, what does this mean? Swear not, neither by heaven, neither by earth. Here's what men tend to do when they get into a trial. God, if you will fix this, then I will go to church every Sunday. We make deals with God. That's what the Bible is saying, swear not. Don't make deals like that. Because you're not going to keep your end of the bargain. It has to be a genuine heart change. It can't be just trying to get out of trouble, get out of a trial. But instead, it's, it's there to refine you and to purify you, not to make you cry out to God and make some sort of deal that you're not going to keep. And so we see, first of all, what to avoid. Then he says, what are we to avow in the second part? Neither by heaven, neither by earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. And so what is the requirement? When God begins to work through that trial, He's using a courtroom t- terminology here. Let your yea be yea and your nay by nay. And it's interesting that both words we use for both are trial. And when we are put in, on the trial or put to the test, and it is a courtroom setting, when we are suffering affliction and we are put to the trial, He says, let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. In other words, you need to get honest with yourself. You need to let God search your heart. You see, you go into a courtroom and you'll stand there before a judge and you'll swear an oath on a Bible. I don't know if they do that much anymore. You can, I, I went to a courtroom hearing uh, a few times over the years and I, I've seen they have a choice now. They can swear on a Bible or they can just swear an oath by raising their right hand. But often you'll, you'll swear that oath to tell the truth and then they'll lie through their teeth. They're just trying to preserve self. And friends, listen, when you're standing before the holy judge, God Almighty, and you're going through a trial of affliction, why would you want to prolong that affliction? Why not just get honest and say, let your yea be yea and your name be God? Yes, I agree with everything you say. I'm a sinner, a worm, and I need your mercy. And he says, why? The next part is the reason, lest you fall into condemnation. So the requirement is get honest with yourself when you're coming into a trial. It's interesting that Job is the example given because Job really didn't do anything wrong. He was just a, a piece of the puzzle. He didn't know what was going on. You know, the truth is, in a trial, a lot of times we don't know what God is doing. We don't always know the end from the beginning like God does. And we don't know what God is trying to work in us. And so a trial is not always to, to take something out of our lives. It's to work something into our lives. But when God is trying to purify something out of our lives, we have to just trust Him and 
Why? Lest we fall into condemnation. You, you start not being honest with yourself, that, that trial is just going to continue. And you'll fall into the greater condemnation. God sees the heart and He knows what you're thinking. And it's revealed when you're under pressure. The proper way to handle adversity, and we'll pick this up in our final lesson next week, is with this final exhortation verse 13. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. That's the demonstration of our patience. Going to the Lord, relying upon Him, giving Him our problems, asking God like David, search me, O God, know my heart, I pray. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Renew the joy of my salvation. And that's what we must do. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Next week we'll see the last several verses, last 13 through 20, last eight verses. And it's a final exhortation about prayer in the book of James. How do we handle affliction? Be patient. Verses 7 through 12, verse 13, pray. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Help us to understand, and Lord, help us to be patient in trials and afflictions, understanding that God is in control and He's working something greater in us. And Father, we'll give you the thanks and praise. Help us, Lord, in our prayer time tonight. Hear our cries in Jesus' name. Amen.